0: Jenny Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv.
1: And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London.
0: And we are unholy two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcasts. Jonathan, how are you? <laughs> I'm
1: well, I'm, it's a mood of celebration and festivity of a sort uh, in this household because the exams are over.
0: Hallelujah. Uh,
1: Uh, Hallelujah. It's been, uh, you know, it's been a process. Um, And uh, it's over. I've, I've, you know, listeners have enjoyed that as we've moved from Tudor England through to uh, the plays of Shakespeare. And we closed with, appropriately, perhaps for this podcast, we closed with religious studies and Judaism and ethics and and meta ethics, which I confess, was not a field I was familiar with before. But now you can test me if you like
0: (laughs) on So this was I mean this is amazing because in, in Israel these these exams these final exams go on for like the end of 11th grade and 12th grade so they go on for essentially 2 years yeah. here what your son did was just like a day after day right the final exams which is pretty it's, insane No
1: exactly right I mean the end you know in my day oned it was even more compacted I mean they really would be morning afternoon morning afternoon um oh. Now they were spread out a little bit, but yeah, over over two and a half, three weeks, um, and it would be there would be a day off, and then you know two in a week, and then you know etc. So, but it's but it's in the past tense, and <laughs> let's face it, you it's not the biggest drama in our world <laughs> this week because you have can always outdo us when it comes. This to is
0: drama. true. This is true. Uh, you know what dawned on me uh, as we began recording. You know what we didn't try in Israel. What we we haven't tried yet is elections the musical that we should maybe try and do like because a lot of stuff can rhyme with Bennett you know we could call it just election exclamation mark um, yes so um, let's do Israel, the show right is, here
1: I think it's okay. um, I think I'm it's got not, great potential Can any
0: of us sing though I'm like I'm I'm worried about this I don't know
1: no but the um, but yeah and also it's it's on so often I mean you eight shows a week <laughs> you'd manage that very easily uh, so so your prediction I want to just big you up for a second. You have predicted all the twists and turns, and you did say very early on, uh, this government is toast, it's over, it's weeks, not months, and all that, and you were right.
0: I like it when you say I was right. Can we just cut that out and use it just on loop for any other circumstances in the future? I I think what you
1: really like is when I go, I was wrong. And you were right. But I didn't yeah, do that
0: here. That's, that's you an were right. That's an improvement. <laughs> um, look, I, you know, I, I want to share with you the uh, sad and simple math I did this week, Jonathan, if you'll indulge me. You know, I'm, I, I work in television. I, I know it's not all about me, but just give me a minute here. Um, I, at the end of this year, will have been anchoring the evening news on Israeli television for 20 years. Um, feels like 80, but that's a different discussion. 20 years. This will be my 10th election cycle, my 10th election night broadcast. In almost 20 years, that is, again, sad and simple math, an average of one election every two years. Israel is now, I believe, the first leading the world in elections since 1996. This isn't a normal situation, right? I mean, we we could laugh all we want, but really it isn't. It isn't normal and it isn't healthy. And and the situation is really that you have a government that needs to govern. It's a, it, it, We have to make decisions about budgets and about Iran and about, you know, everything else. And everything is stuck because of this in an economic situation, which is dire, in tensions, regional tensions, like this is the last thing that Israel needs right now.
1: Yeah. No, Israel is the new Italy. When uh, a long time ago, Italy was the byword for political instability, and it was a running joke how many governments it had had since 1945. But that's actually amazing that you've statistically said for the last three decades, actually, that place now goes to Israel. And the idea of you having done or, or will, you know, on course to having done 10 election cycles, it's funny because the longtime anchor of election night broadcasts in this country did his last one at the last election and he was a man knocking 80 you know and he had done I think either eight or nine I don't think he'd done 10 and but to get there he had to be somebody who had been both a wunderkind like yourself anchoring elections in his 20s or 30s but still he had to be 80 years old before he'd done 10 elections and you've done it uh,
0: in the prime of youth. sensing a letter to the Guinness uh, Book of World Records yeah, that you want to write, clear. right? That you're, you'll write for me and then maybe well, we can get like a plaque.
1: It, it could be I the opening that. song of our show that we're going to <laughs> co-write together. No, it's an amazing and unwanted um, uh, title that Israel has. And um, well, look, we're going to be doing a deep dive In- into indeed. it.
0: Indeed. Um, And with our special guest, Amit Segal, who is really the uh, smartest of political analysts in this uh, country, I I just have to mention to you briefly that the name on everyone's lips this week was not actually Lapid or Bennett or even Netanyahu. The name was Yafa Ben David, who's the head of the teachers union, who decided a couple of days before the school year actually ends to go on strike teachers' wages, etc. But it means that all of the parents in this land are incredibly upset at this. This is what everyone was talking about. And I read someone on Twitter uh, who wrote something so smart. He said, Israel has four seasons in a year. It's summer, elections, war, and strike. So I'll just add that occasionally they overlap. But this yeah. is this is where we are. So above everything else, there's also a teacher strike in Israel yeah, right now.
1: Which for parents and sort of people dealing with childcare is unwelcome And for parents Um,
0: plus journalists, you can imagine it's been quite a week.
1: (laughs) I mean, it is all here. And people who are in that little bit of the overlap of the Venn diagram, not mentioning any name.
0: Maybe we should give a brief uh, explainer for the baffled and bewildered what actually happened. This week, which is that on Wednesday uh, the Knesset dissolved and thus Israel is going to elections as we said the fifth in three years. Naftali Bennett, the prime minister, decided to drop a bomb on his own coalition uh, really and take the lead on dissolving parliament. This is a decision that he arrived at, realizing that really the, he's at a dead end. He preempted the opposition, who was going to do that uh, anyway. I'll just say the final straw was pushed the, him over the brink was the regulations to extend Israeli law over the West Bank settlements. A Law that was due to expire June 30th, and he realized he didn't have the majority to pass it. So at eight o'clock on Sunday evening, Naftali Bennett and alternate Prime Minister Yair Lapid, who, by the way, Bennett surprised by this announcement essentially, went on air together. It was kind of this. Something you don't you really see in Israeli politics. They were hugging each other. Yair Lapid said to Naftali Bennett, "I love this guy," but they both said to the nation, "Like this is it. We have to dissolve." I think we we they, they said we we think we had a good government, but uh, it's over now. Yair Lapid, if this goes according to plan on Tuesday, will become the head of a caretaker government, and this will be the first time I think it's safe to say that Israel has a center-left prime minister since. Ehud Barak, I assume, in 1999. That is where we are right now. Naftali Bennett will be left with the title of alternate prime minister and the person who's responsible for the Iran portfolio. But many are asking themselves whether he indeed will remain in politics. Um, And how shall I say this, Jonathan? Thus endeth the most, add your adjective here, right? The most bold, turbulent, daring, and ultimately failed uh, experiment at Israeli politics.
1: Look, we're going to get into the extent to which Israelis mourn the passing of this government. I have to say, for myself, I liked the idea of a Jewish-Arab coalition. I think it seemed like a coming of age for Israel, in a way, that the, there was this participation of, unexpectedly, and of all parties, an Islamist party. I mean, sort of amazing that happened. Um, I think from conversations I've had with people in foreign governments i think they liked it too they were really glad to see the back of netanyahu i think who you know that's apart from in a few places that liked uh, him and most governments particularly in europe but even obviously the biden administration they were not fans of his and i think i was going to say diaspora communities i mean that is a big generalization obviously there are people jews outside israel who really love netanyahu and are big fans of his but those who particularly move in progressive circles I think they would say the last year was a bit of a respite because they didn't have to sort of feel that they were being held uh, accountable for or defend somehow a guy who is internationally pretty unpopular. And instead of being able to point to this diverse rainbow coalition was quite a nice thing to be able to do. You know, not a big calculation for Israelis, I know, uh, but those outside, I think, will be mourning this government, perhaps more than those inside Israel.
0: So this is the right time to introduce our special guest uh, and a friend of the pod. And uh, Amit is a colleague. He's the lead political analyst for Channel 12. He writes a weekly column from Yedioth Chonot newspaper, and he's the author of a best-selling book, The Story of Israeli Politics, which will come out in English very, very soon. He's also the man who made me laugh on Twitter this week, as every week. But this week he tweeted this. The dissolution of the fifth Knesset within three years is so depressing that I'm going to clear my head now with a series of the Eichmann recordings. So I, <laughs> Amit, Amit, thank you for joining us and giving us that perspective.
2: Thank you very much. Yes, yes. In the middle of the Great Depression.
0: <laughs> this really is very, I mean, it's, it's terrible for many people, but I think for political analysts, probably the worst, right? Well,
2: it used to be very fun, especially for me, I have to admit. It's like being an undertaker in the middle of a plague um you have i mean you have a monthly income, but it's actually uh satisfying professionally. <laughs> but I think the fifth time is like reliving or re re- reliving a situation that we are quite used to um it's again the same rules, the same persons very very small uh changes so and now we have the longest election campaign in uh the last in in the third millennium the long the last long elections uh in israeli terms were held um in 1999 so mm-hmm. it's the longest election campaign in 25 years with the shortest list of things to say or to deliver in this campaign So it's going to be a very long summer, and and just explain
1: why this is a long one. Is it because the hagim, the festivals, are coming in
2: September? And yeah, well, basically two reasons. One is the fact that elections in Israel are usually held on Tuesdays, so every single Tuesday is either Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, etc. And the other thing is the attempt of Yair Lapid to get into the prime minister's suit, so every week counts. He wants to have the elections on November 8th, but I, I guess they'll come to they'll come to terms with with November 1st.
0: So you mentioned Yair Lapid, so I'll, I'll pick up on that for a minute. I mean, again, a decade, 10 and a half years to be exact, since he left his television position. He was the most popular person on Israeli television, we should say. He will be essentially running this, what Americans would call Rose Garden campaign, right? Exactly. He's the incumbent, the Balfour Street campaign, if you will how helpful will this be to him? And how can anyone be a prime minister or lead the co- the most complicated country on earth for four months? Yeah. Like this is, this is pretty intense. L- Lapid actually
2: is going to run two different campaigns. The regular one is against Bibi. The second one is basically the primaries within the center-left camp. Now, here's the story. There used to be two big parties, like the Labour and the Tories, but the Labour in Israel collapsed Today is 30 years to the uh, 1992 upheaval when Rabin defeated Likud with 44 seats, which is a lot. Now they have seven, and it's considered a huge success for the current uh, chairman of the Labour Party. So the big, huge tree of the left collapsed, and we have very, you know, those Japanese miniature trees trying to get bigger. So we have Yair Lapid's party, we have Benny Gantz's party, we have Labour Party, and no one really acknowledged the leadership of the other party. Now Lapid got the biggest achievement of being the first prime minister from the center-left since 2006, or even if we do not, if we count out Eudolmet yeah. from 1999. So this is a huge achievement. Now here's the catch: it's very good for him to be a prime minister in order to defeat Benny Gantz and Mirav Michaeli. But it's quite difficult for him to defeat Benjamin Netanyahu, because only a year ago in the 2021 campaign, Netanyahu did every single attempt to create this horse race between him and Yair Lapid. And Lapid just avoided this race because he knew that he lags significantly behind Netanyahu in terms of fitting for... he, He actually tried to avoid running against Netanyahu, and now... He's actually he forced himself into this race.
1: Does his th- thinking from a year ago that in any he- direct horse race, two horse race with Netanyahu, he loses, does that thinking still hold good now? Does the polling say in a head to head matchup of the two, he's way behind or has anything
2: changed in the intervening period? Something dramatic changed last year the best Lapid could have hoped for was a rotation government with a figure from the right wing, be it Bennett or Saar or Lieberman. Now, if he gets 61 seats with the Arab parties, he will definitely try to form a coalition based on their votes. One party inside the coalition, one from the outside, but he wants the office for himself. So this is what changed. Plus, He believes, and we still don't know that, that those four months in the prime minister's office and prime minister's residence, by the way, will actually help him to reshape his brand as a national leader, as an international leader, in a way that will help him close the gap between Netanyahu and himself. For instance, a week ago, before the announcement, he lagged 26 to Netanyahu's 47%. After the announcement and before taking office, it's 31 versus 47. And he hopes it will be 40 versus 47. So I think this is the case for him. Plus, everyone wants to be a prime minister. That that was his claim to fame in the past.
0: We're talking about Lapid, but let's sort of rewind this a little bit. And I want to ask about Naftali Bennett. And not only... I think we'll get to this in the conversation, where did this government fail? But I kind of want to ask about him personally. Because let's admit, I mean, before he sat in the prime minister's office, this was a man who was impulsive, who always attacked Netanyahu from the right. He had these kind of ridiculous campaign ads in which he, you know, sang against the Supreme Court and was dressed as a Tel Aviv hipster, like all kinds of, uh, it didn't seem very mature. He sat in the prime minister's office and he suddenly was tried to be this, first of all, centrist in Israeli politics. This is a man who had the settler movement and to be this responsible adult, even the elder statesman at the age of 49. Is what happened here that it happened? I mean, to Ariel Sharon, this happened over decades. What happened here was what? It was so quick that it was a whiplash, that he didn't convince anyone but himself, he didn't convince the country, he didn't convince the party?
2: Well, I think um, he lacked story. His attempt was to come to the Israeli public and to tell them, and to the right wing, especially to his voters, listen, I had no choice. This is what we call in um, Jewish um, religious literature, bediavat. It's not the first choice, it's the... um, how would I say that? It's the last choice, but the one that is possible. So
0: mm-hmm.
2: here's the story. He fell in love with this solution, but his voters and his Knesset members did not. I think that that was the reason why this whole coalition collapsed from the prime minister's party. It's, it's against the rules of politics. Usually the last party to dissolve a parliament is the prime minister's party. Save uh, Boris Johnson's story, but uh, but uh, but usually, but usually, usually in a, this is the case. So he couldn't recognize it, and plus he didn't have a story. It's not that encouraging to have a government in which you hug the people that used to be your most bitter opponents till a year ago. That's the reason he, in my opinion, ended his political career.
1: Well, it's fascinating you say ending his career because people are assuming now he takes some break from. Politics, frontline politics, that he sits out the next election. But if he did s- surprise those commentators and said, "Yeah, I'm, our party's going to stand again. I'm going to stand again," would his party get any votes at all, or are they is his brand politically finished?
2: Israeli voters usually are quite tolerant for um, born again uh, Christians for for uh, former sinners, Benny Gantz. Joint forces with Netanyahu against all his political election pledges for three rounds, and then he used to be on 35 seats, and he almost fell uh, under the the threshold, of course. Yeah. And then he he actually begged for their pardon, and he got it. Now here's the different thing: here, Naftali Bennett lost all his voters because they are in the right wing. The four or five seats that you see now come from the center left. So as much as they admire his decision, they will always have better options, like Lapid and Gantz and Mikhaili. So they love his decision, but they will not vote for his party, especially when the the names of his Knesset members, of his ministers, are those of people who still say today that they prefer to join Netanyahu's government. So either he dissolves his party or Mm -hmm. say goodbye to his voters. And in my opinion, usually what happens is that they both live.
0: Interesting. uh, We we, uh, got a question from um, our uh, listeners. Uh, One of them, Suzanne, asks, and I think this is a a very important question for the future of this country as well, is there a future for any Arab party being part of this government after this experience? What would you say to that? Well,
2: now it's fashionable to say that the experiment failed. That is to say that you cannot actually base your coalition on non-Zionist Arab parties. Israeli voters usually believe in non-Jewish Knesset members within Zionist parties, mm-hmm. but of course it's it's very, way more difficult when it's as a whole a non-Zionist Arab um, a party. Right.
0: It's it's never a question for non-Zionist Haredi. Um, uh, well, I think it's the
2: always, process yeah, they have gone through. Thing. Is yeah. with the, this storm of, and you know, we kept 20 minutes without saying the name Benjamin Netanyahu. So it's a great achievement for us. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but but the, the, but joining forces with Netanyahu and signing the alliance, the big the mm-hmm. great alliance of the right wing, actually not only took Netanyahu to the hands of the extremists from the right wing like Itamar Ben but it took the non-Zionist ultra-orthodox parties towards a more Zionist direction to the extent that many youngsters from the ultra-Orthodox community consider vote, mm-hmm. voting either for Likud or for Itamar Ben-Gvir. It's quite amazing. Now, wow. as for the Arab parties, in my opinion, this is I, I, I can't determine whether this experiment failed or not. I'll tell you which experiment has definitely failed. And that was the experiment of rule number one in the Israeli fight club. Do not mention Faita, do not mention Benjamin Netanyahu. The attempt was to actually have a different system, to say we, we actually defeated Netanyahu, we'll form a new government and then we'll reshape the political map. And it didn't happen. That support for Netanyahu is still very significant to the extent that it is not necessarily enough for forming a coalition, but it's, it's significant enough in order to force new elections. As a result, this election will, will be around Netanyahu. I would say it's, it will be about Bibi. Originally. Yes, rather than B- than Tibi, the most famous Arab yeah. member.
1: I mean, in terms of Netanyahu and his standing, does he just offer a kind of back-to-the-future campaign where he says, you know me, I'm the f- known quantity, I've governed the country for X years more than anyone else, or is he bent on presenting a new offer?
2: Here is the here is the dilemma. Likud supporters or Likud uh, prominent figures claim that the reason they lost the elections la- last year was because three hundred thousand Likud voters stayed at home rather than coming to the ballots when voting Likud. And there was there were many reasons. It was a week before Passover. One has to clean the house, and there was there was a day with. Uh, haze. So it was quite difficult for old people to to come and vote. But the conclusion from from this is that if you want to motivate your base, you have to turn to the right. You have to be more stunt uh, Likudnik than you used to be. You have to promise to change the Supreme Court and to annex all the territories and to be BB, super BB. Okay. And the other approach says that they will come Definitely anyway, because they saw a government with the left and Lapid and the Arab parties, etc. And the attempt is to actually attract those 50,000 people. The, the, Israel's um, uh, Georgia, okay? Those voters that decide the elections. And they are moderate. They are center-right. And they didn't want Bibi, but they don't want Tibi as well. So you have to attract them. You have to offer them something which is more than the ultra orthodox taking over the country and the settlers, etc. This is Netanyahu's dilemma, which will decide the election.
0: I mean, we're going to fifth elections in three years, right? The deep problem of Israeli society is not actually the argument in Netanyahu, yes or no, it's, it's the fragmentation. Yes. What is going to be resolved this time? I mean, how are you not walking blindly into election six, seven, eight? Rabbis say that each of us are put on earth for a purpose. I guess the specific purpose of our nation is to just keep voting. I mean, how is this ever going to stop?
2: The only way the next election will not occur on 2023, but let's say, I would say even 2025. Let's be
0: optimistic, 2024. Yes,
2: it's only if Netanyahu wins 61 seats. The other option is either for Lapid to form a non-stable, even less stable than the current one, with all of the Arab parties, in my opinion, it will not survive the first rocket from Gaza because the party, the joint list, the second Arab party, um, did not even pay the lip service of saying that Israel is Jewish and democratic, not a very stable base to build upon. And the other option is that the ultra-Orthodox parties will actually... Um, join this coalition in order to get budgets, etc. But this coalition will not be very stable as well. So as long as Netanyahu does not leave or does not win 61, an outright majority, and those two options are far, far from being be seen in the forecast, so we are doomed.
1: Positive <laughs> thought. I mean, the um, the... The, the, the binding agent, the one thing, that picking up what you was saying about fragmentation, the one thing it seemed that at least half mm-hmm. of Israeli society could cohere around was opposition to Netanyahu. Are there any voices on the Likud side who are saying, you know, we would actually be a 61-seat would or more. We would, we would have a natural majority in this quite conservative country if it weren't for him. Uh, and I'm thinking how, you know, there are voices on the American Republican Party saying Trump himself is the problem. Trumpism is fine. That's popular, they think. But Trump is the problem. Are there people on Likud side saying enough with Bibi? If we presented someone else, we would remove the logic that unites our opponents mm-hmm. and actually maybe we could govern that way.
2: The fact that those voices are under the um, term of uh, confidentiality means that they are not very significant publicly. Almost every single figure within Likud will tell you that, but not a single one of them will tell it publicly. Those figures that said that are no longer within in the Likud. It's Gedon Saar, Lieberman that was part of Likud in the past, Tali Bennett, etc. Okay. Now, here's the thing. I think it's quite different from the states. In the US, it's about the mobilization of the base to the belts. Trump, what Trump did, Trump's advantage is by convincing those Tea Party supporters into the belts. It's about enthusiasm. Netanyahu's thing is different. The fear of right-wingers consists of two parts. First, the conclusion will be that the legal system the deep jewish state actually took down a popular hawkish right-wing prime minister and it will it will be a defeat for the right wing which is even bigger and more historical than merely losing an election so they prefer to be a strong opposition than a soft coalition this is one thing mm-hmm. the other thing and this is more political than what i just said is that if netanyahu goes The right wing will probably be part of the government, but Likud will probably be way weaker than it used to be. There isn't a single figure that can actually attract more than half than the voters Netanyahu attracts.
0: That's incredible. We talked about it last time of him being an asset uh, for the Likud exactly. in general and the number of mandates that he gets, but a liability in the fact that he can't actually uh, manage to uh, form a government. I'm going to add one more question from our uh, listeners, which is uh, Gilad, who wanted to ask you, I wonder what, I'm curious about the answer to this question. What is the lowest point of Israeli politics that you can personally recall? Um... Um, <laughs> it's a tough competition, <laughs> I know.
2: So much to choose from. Um, th- there were many, but the moment, the tons of things said in the campaign, usually in the past we used to take, people were, were shocked from the fact that they brought something said in 2012 and now it's 2019 and wow, what a change. Now you don't have to come to the archives you just have, <laughs> you know, just have to take yesterday's newspaper. The tons of pledges that were broken over the last year was amazing. And what it caused is that, and it's quite um, interesting to cover, I don't think no one will be interested in what Sa or Bennett or Lapido or Bibi will say about who they are going to sit with and who they, are, they will never sit with. Because we're so, we wanted a process of disillusionment. Uh, mm. We are disillusioned. By the way, there is no there is no specific word for this in Hebrew. It's funny, right? Um, I wonder why. <laughs> but, 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 you might need one. But the sentiment exists, <laughs>
0: okay? No disillusionment and no accountability. Two words you exactly. don't have in Hebrew. Exactly. That's, pretty, that's pretty amazing.
2: I know you say accountability, but you don't understand what it means.
0: <laughs> but
2: um, I'll tell you something interesting. Yesterday, they, there was a strike in the... Education system. So I took my son, Ivry, who is seven years yesterday old.
0: Yesterday and today and tomorrow. Exactly. But yes, yes, yesterday. Yeah. I
2: took him to the Knesset, uh, to see daddy's work. And we sat there at the, uh, journalist stalls watching the Knesset, uh, making a, a suicide. And, mm. uh, they counted the ballots. And then my son asked, who's going to be, who's the prime minister? So I, I told him, oh, it's quite complicated. This is the guy, yeah. Naftali. And he asked, isn't it Bibi? I said, yes, he was a year ago. And he said, but, and then I, I recalled, N- next week there was going to be a new prime minister, Yair Lapid. And then he asked, why? And for the first time in uh, our short history of speaking about politics, I wasn't um, embarrassed to explain him. For instance, <laughs> it's, it's way easier to explain for a child that one actually kept his promise Rather than to explain him why he promised but will never uh, keep, keep keep his words. Now, uh, in order to keep this moment optimistic, I saved from him the fact that Bennett actually lied for every single voter a year ago, <laughs> and I kept it in that optimistic note that you see every, we should keep promises. And uh, but, but but I think that was a single moment uh, from an era almost in which you should uh, keep your children away of the television when you, when the when you need to, speaks about politics
1: yeah so trying to make uh, israeli politics a source of moral instruction <laughs> yes is quite a challenge even for an analyst like you i think to do that I, i'm just just before we sort of close the book on this government yep. will it be a, a sort of premise of the coming campaign among the politicians themselves but among voters that that last government was a failure, we must never go back to that, that was a terrible thing. Is that how its place in sort of political history is going to be recorded, because it did end after just a year? Because again, I you know, Yoni and I were saying before you joined us that outside Israel, diaspora communities, foreign governments, they quite liked the idea of this government, the diversity, the inclusiveness of it, Arab parties, Jewish parties. It, I, I'm just interested to know whether it would become a kind of settled view, a consensus among Israelis that, ah, that didn't work, and we mustn't go back to that. Whatever new constellation of forces comes together to, out of the horse trading, that one was was a failure, because that will be quite important, I almost think, for the sort of psychology of the country yep. in the coming decades, if this one is seen as a failed experiment or worse.
2: Too early to call, too early to say, and... Um... I think there is a third option that it's not that it will be remembered for good or for bad, but that it will not be remembered or will barely remembered as an anecdote in an ongoing crisis that hit Israel on its uh, second and third decade of the 21st century. I'm afraid that no one will dare to analyze this coalition because people will see it as Yet another experiment, like the Netanyahu government that had been formed a year before. But I think the 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 only thing that can actually be taken from this government is the inclusion of an Arab party in this coalition. And I think a lot will be decided in this election. Right now, the Arab voters are not don't don't want to come to the ballots. They feel. Then again, disillusioned, and they feel that they voted again in vain. And uh, more than oh, half, or almost half, of the Israeli public believes, according to our last poll, that this government is based on terrorist uh, sympathizers.
0: I would claim that if Netanyahu brought Mansour Abbas into his government, those wouldn't be the numbers. That's what Bennett of, claims, of for instance.
2: Um, yeah. But um, well, uh, maybe maybe we'll have a. Uh, Second chance to check it,
0: yeah. Maybe it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Amit. I assume we might be doing this again very, very soon. You don't and say, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you, thank you so much for coming on. Unholy, it was a big deal, I think, on your part to just bring forth these fifth elections just to come back on. Unholy, exactly. you can just yes. ask me next time, and we'll find a good enough. we have had you,
2: you didn't need yeah, to go. To I mean, days. you don't
0: need to go that far.
2: Yes, yeah, so I'll come only on single digit campaigns, okay. <laughs> From the 11th on, onward, I think we'll, we'll we'll be done with that. Thank you very we'll, much. Uh, we'll
0: both retire. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Amit. So Amit Sagal, a very, very smart guy indeed. Always great to have him on the podcast. Of course, Israel doesn't get to do elections alone, even though <laughs> it seems to do them more often. Other countries do too. And in France, a big blow for the incumbent president, uh, Emmanuel Macron, obviously we talked on the podcast when it was a head-to-head, him against uh, Marine Le Pen, but there were parliamentary elections and he lost his majority in parliament and big surges for Le Pen's party of the right and also uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon on the left. I don't know what you think, I, I, you know, it's inter- it's telling in some ways that we and a whole lot of other people didn't talk much in advance about these elections, because we were all there for the drama when it was head to head, him against mm-hmm. Le Pen, the prospect of a far right figure like Le Pen as president, had all of us outside France very exercised, and in a way we didn't really sort of tune in for the follow-up, but this really matters for Macron, it's going to really be hard for him to govern, but it just seems to me that there's You know, maybe almost like an attention deficit that people, not just us here, but you know, a similar story when it's not Biden versus Trump. Somehow populism seems to flourish, except when it is a straight fight versus a kind of hated individual. So Joe Biden can beat Donald Trump, Emmanuel Macron can beat Marine Le Pen, but Republicans are on course to do incredibly well in the midterm elections. Le Pen's party did well in these parliamentary elections it's a bit of a defect for anti-populism they're not great when there isn't an individual to hate and mm-hmm. oppose and rally against on the ballot
0: yeah i mean first of all it's an interesting that's an interesting point i would i would just Maybe note that I'm not sure it's only the media that kind of tuned out on this. I, Emmanuel Macron himself was sort of um, accused of tuning out himself. He went to Ukraine two days before uh, these elections. Uh, the French voter wasn't entirely interested, uh, right. and I think yeah. voter apathy is 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 really an issue, and could be also an issue in Israel that will completely change the rules of the game if there you know people are just tired of of these uh, elections. and And you mentioned the fact that. Many people in the world, I think, including the people who co-host this uh, podcast, uh, had the sigh of relief when Marine Le Pen uh, uh, lost. These are really uh, big gains for her. And these following weeks, um, Yair Lapid, as head of the caretaker uh, government, will meet Emmanuel Macron. I think they'll have a lot to talk about uh, regarding fragmented parliaments and how to deal with trying to be a centrist in this reality where you have these extremes on both ends, the extreme left and the extreme right, kind of going to pull Macron in 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 two different uh, directions. It's going to be a very, very difficult uh, few years for him to try and uh, maneuver this whole uh, situation. And um, the question of, of prime minister, of course, will be uh, terribly important. This isn't great news for France. It was expected, but it isn't great news.
1: Yeah, um, I think uh, it's not just Not great news for France. I think for Europe, for the West, Mm -hmm. it's bad news. One of the reasons I made the arguments I did against Brexit was I think destabilizing the European Union destabilizes the democratic world and Mm -hmm. destabilizes the West. It is in a battle, a kind of mortal uh, battle with Putinism, authoritarianism, and Russia's invasion of Ukraine is the sharp end of that. But for that fight, you need a strong European Union. And Mm with a new chancellor in Germany, and Germany obviously having all kinds of historic reasons for being reluctant to take the lead in a hard power conflict, the onus of leadership had passed to Emmanuel Macron. You know, Britain is out of it in terms of the EU. Uh, That was on him. And if he cannot get his own domestic agenda through, and is a kind of hobbled figure, Mm -hmm. uh, even potentially a lamed up president, this is not good for France, for the European Union, and therefore I would say the West, the democratic world, Um, it has been weakened. I think Putin will be quite pleased with that result. And that's always a good test of any election anywhere in the world, actually. What does Putin want to happen and kind of do the opposite? Well, Putin wanted this outcome to the extent he was paying attention. He would like a weakened Emmanuel Macron. So yeah, I think that's a troubling result. Should we um, hand out some awards, do you think?
0: Maybe lighten the mood a little bit?
1: Um well I think first um I was going to mention as uh, the, the competition has been very stiff this week Agreed. and Manashevits and uh, makers of <laughs> Kosher Kiddish wine that we all you know, I wasn't about to say love. I mean, I'll say that we were all familiar with, perhaps, <laughs> exactly. if we have if we have ever had uh, Shabbat dinner at an uh, American Jewish table, we will be very familiar with Manischewitz. They decided to stretch the brand and expand a little. Uh, and so they are putting on the market stadium-size hot dogs. And you think, okay, what's wrong with that? We know that kosher hot dogs are a thing at American sporting uh, grounds and events. Why not? Except... These are gefilte fish hot dogs.
0: Um,
1: It is, uh, you know, it's the gefilte fish product, but done in a form of a long sausage. Um, I think it's fair to say that uh, there was a sort of ick response, I think, from you, Yonit, <laughs> I, when this was presented I,
0: to you. I, I just wonder, and this is chutzpah because they ruined hot dogs for us. This is why we're putting them a little bit in the chutzpah column. But I'm just saying, like, us uh, Jews of Eastern European descent, like, there are good things that we brought into the world, right? I'm not sure yes. gefilte fish is one of them. I'm actually quite <laughs> sure it isn't. And um, so why? Why? Just why is the question I want to ask. Yeah. I have nothing I'm looking
1: more. The, I, I'm, I'm looking at the packaging, made with real gefilte fish, boobies recipe. Um, you're right, <laughs> culinarily, this is not one of Dury's great contributions to world civilization. No. I'm with you on um, I think we may get some fierce responses We, might. On, our, we, might. On, we our, apologize. on our Facebook page and elsewhere uh, for both of us. We, we, we don't have diversity of thought on this issue. Um, yeah, I've never been a fan of gefilte fish. It was always the thing you sort of had to get through to get to the next course. Anyway, gefilte fish hot dogs. No, thank you. Um, we, it's an unholy no from us. Um, anyway, as I say, crowded field, the actual award for chutzpah is not going to go to Manashevitz, but rather members of Israel's ultra orthodox uh, leadership, specifically the Shas party, which has decided to criticize, um, the nominee to head the Jewish agency, namely the former general Doron Almog, who quite a long time ago, um, at a gathering that was attended by American Jews, Reformed Jews and Israelis on kibbutz, recalled the bat mitzvah of his daughter. This was a long time ago, I mean, when he said it was a while ago, but his daughter is now 43, so her bat mitzvah was Thirty years ago, and he was reminiscing, and he said, "Look, when she was twelve and her bat mitzvah was approaching, she was very insistent that she wanted to be called up to read from the Torah, from the scrolls themselves of the Holy Word." And he said, "You know, my wife and I didn't know much about Reform Judaism, particularly, but yeah, she, she, his daughter did the work. She found out. She went up to the Torah, and there was great joy. And she says that you know the picture of her talit, the prayer shawl that she wore, is hanging in our house. Well." You know, in Orthodox Judaism, doesn't think women should ever be allowed to call directly, be called to the Torah redirectly, especially in in a mixed congregation. And so, members of Israel's religious parties have denounced um, Almog for for this. One uh, Shas party member saying that his quick and unnecessary flattery of the reform movement indicates that he is unworthy of his new position. He's chosen factionalism over unity. This feels a bit. Um, backward looking to me. I mean, not just, and backward really. Girls all over the Jewish world now mark their bat mitzvah with being called to the Torah. It's a basic equality issue. We know that Orthodox Judaism has not got there yet, although fascinating moves going on within Orthodox Judaism for women's equal participation in prayer and religious services. But I think Shas get a you know, because if they don't want to do it, that's fine. But denouncing a guy who did do that for his daughter 30 years ago, I think it's a chutzpah.
0: Yes, I wouldn't expect Shas to be uh, very forward-thinking about Reform Judaism in an election year. But I, uh, but I yes. listen carefully to what you said. Um,
1: <laughs> so that is our chutzpah nominee from a very crowded field. Um, I think it's you're going to give us a mention of the week, Yoni.
0: Indeed. I wanted to give it to uh, Dmitry Muratov, who is the editor of the Novaya Gazeta. It's a, a famous Russian newspaper that deals a lot with uh, not only obviously hard news, but also uh, human rights and issues like that. They, by the way, suspended uh, their activity now because of the war in Ukraine. And he has decided to sell his Nobel Prize, peace prize, and to send all profits uh, to Ukraine. So this is just, a, I think, first of all, I think he deserves the mention Award of the Week, but it is an example of how we talked a lot about how journalists can change the way that we view the war. This is a different aspect of it. But the fact that this man is brave enough to do this uh, at a time like this, I think is something that we should probably point out in our... And it raised podcast. the
1: most enormous amount of money. I mean, I think some uh, some colossal figure
0: of dollars... at a New York auction.
1: Isn't that amazing? I mean, to have that a Nobel amazing. medal, somebody wants that on their mantelpiece. They're prepared to buy Which pay is not 100. actually
0: theirs, right? Somebody it's buying something that doesn't belong to them. So um, it's fascinating
1: to me. Did that maybe, maybe the donor, um, the, the buyer is mentioned because maybe they did it, um, because they wanted to give a hundred million to Ukraine. Um, either way, um, a, a worthy winner. Um, of our Mench of the Week Award. Now, remember, you should be joining our Facebook group, Unholy Podcast. You see what happens if you're on that group because you get to ask those questions that we put to the best uh, uh, and finest among Israeli analysts. Um, So go on to Unholy Podcast on Facebook, chime in with your ideas, opinions, suggestions for the episode, sending things you'd like us to talk about and address. As you see, you too may get picked out and your question read out by... Yoni Levy, no less. So do that.
0: <laughs> I will say our thank yous to Gaia Glazer, Omer Primat, Rom Atik, and Irad Eshel for original music. Jonathan, send a little bit of tea and sympathy my way this week. I'm having a teacher strike. I'm having fifth elections. Like, it's a hard thing to hold up. I'm just saying.
1: Yeah, there should be a care package on its <laughs> way, um, We'll see each other. I'll see you next week, Yoni.
0: We will indeed.